Blog Talk Radio. everyone. Welcome to GTP Keeper Radio, the Blue Condro episode, starring Dave D. and Rich Culver. I'm here with Phil Stagel. It is Sunday, March 26, 2017, 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time here on the East Coast. Bill, how are you? I'm doing well, buddy. How about you? I'm doing fantastic. What's going on Man, in Texas? I've been, hyped about, I've been hyped about this show uh, ever since we kind of uh, finalize the guests. Um, this, this show is going to be incredible. I can't wait. Um, things in Texas are, are good here. It was 85 degrees here today. Um, we've just had a, a very, uh, mild winter and we're moving into a, a very nice springtime and, um, boy, things just couldn't be better. How about on the East coast? Um, we had a, we had a mild day yesterday, at least here. And it was uh, mid-70s, and today it's maybe mid-50s and a little bit rainy. But, you know, it's not snowing, um, so I'm not going to complain. But I think one of our guests would probably tell me that I'm a whiner, worrying about a little bit of snow when he tells us where part of the country he's from. Um, I, I, so, yeah, um, I know. Is that, that's why they call it the ice house? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So, um, yeah. So that's pretty much it. You know, spring's on the way kids and you know work and the collection all that fun stuff very very good um what do you got on the uh on the docket for tonight we're going to talk about uh you've had a a busy uh few weeks here and um can't wait to hear about uh some of the stuff that's been going on in your world um yeah clutch number three hatch for me this year um today started hatching today this morning i woke up and looked, I saw some heads popping out, so I, you know, went went back and pipped the rest of the clutch. So they're looking pretty good. I've, you know, had the uh, Christian and I, Christian Stewart and I did the uh, elementary pairing, and you know, we got some neonates from that pairing as well. And then I had another clutch about 10 days ago at Hatch, and my fourth and final clutch of the season is in the incubator and is about nine days away from hatching. So it'll be a it'll be a busy baby season time for me. So. Keep me in your man. Donkey. That is for sure. Four clutches. How many clutches did you have last year? One. One. That's what I had. One clutch. Yeah. Wow. Four uh, clutches. Um, gosh, I hope they're not too big, man. Me too. Well, I, there's this guy in Texas that uh, a few years ago needed a favor, and um, <laughs> I think he said he would help me out if, if I needed any any help. So I'm, I might I might call on him. So, Listen, we'll I've, I've told Gary, big you know, 
<laughs> I've told Gary, and, and I'll tell you the same thing. If you know, if you can't get those babies going, you send them, you send them down here, and I'll, I'll get them going for you. There you go. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm closing down an old cage system that I, I set up uh, maybe seven or eight years ago, and um, got a new rack system in, and in the process of setting that up and moving some moving animals into into that setup. So. You know, that's pretty much what's going on with me collection-wise. And, um, well, you know, well, last year I, did a, I had a two pair, two clutches of rhino rat snakes, and this year I'm not doing any of those guys, um, which is a good thing, I think, with uh, the conquerors well, yeah. that we have on the way. So. Yeah, yeah. Yep. because those things, are, uh, those things are about as hard to get established as baby conquerors, aren't they? I think so, but the good thing about those guys is they uh, – they're they're just a, a bit more uh, bitey, and um, I think their 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 swallow reflex is a little bit a little bit easier to for the snake to just you know take the animal. They don't need to constrict; they'll just swallow a hole and all that fun stuff. So swallow it. But you got some stuff yeah. going on down at your place, particularly the end of April. That's uh, pretty big news. Uh, the end of April. Remind me. Oh, oh is it, yes, of course. Isn't there you're, like you're a trying big to lead, party or tra- something? You're trying to yes. lead into my plug. Yeah, very yes. well done. Yes. Yes, before we get too much farther, because we want to touch on a couple things in the MVF news before we bring our, our guests on, um, I want to talk about Carpet Fest, which I think most of, the, of our listeners are familiar with Carpet Fest. It's essentially just a big snake party. And we are having the third annual Southern Carpet Fest. It's being held here uh, in Arlington, Texas at Mikasa. It's going to be April 29th. And, um, you know, if you haven't been to one of these Carpet Fests, buddy, I know you have, it is worth going to. It is, it is so much different than anything, any other experience that you can get. It's different than, you know, even the, the best shows, even at Tinley or, um, you know, Anything like that, obviously, it, it trumps the uh, the social media experiences that you get. But this is just a place where people can gather, and you don't have to know anybody. You just you come, and you just say, hey, what kind of snakes you got? And it goes from there. And this thing is really uh, – I think the, the Northeast guys started it, and I don't know quite how many years ago that was, but it's grown – uh, there's a Northeast Carpet Fest, there's a Northwest Carpet Fest, we have Southern Carpet Fest, and I think there's even a Southeast Carpet Fest in Florida. Um, but the two that are coming up are, are ours, Southern, on April 29th. And, you know, we had over 100 people here last year. And, you know, awesome. the year before that, we probably had 50 or 60. And, it, it certainly isn't just about the quantity of people. It's the quality of people that, that are going to be here. Um, obviously, uh, Eric Burke and uh, Owen McIntyre, our brothers from Marilia Python Radio, they're going to make their second trip. Actually, this will be Eric's third trip down here. Um, so they're going to be here. Um, we've got Matt Minitola of Philly Herps, and his wife are going to come down. Uh, those guys are from uh, Matt and Kim are from Philadelphia, and Matt – I think you, you do know Matt. He's a cornerstone breeder of blood and Borneo short tail pythons. I mean, in the country. Right. Yep. And yep. He's going to come down. Um, Terry Burwell 
from South Texas is going to come up. He's big into rhino rat snakes, as you know. He's got, you know, rough scale pythons and a very eclectic collection. He's very knowledgeable. Um, Matt Morris, you know Matt very well. Yes. And his friend, his friend Shane Dobson, they're coming from Austin. They did the food last year, which was just absolutely fantastic. They hauled a, uh, you know, one of those big smokers up here, and they smoked chicken and uh, provided food for everybody. Uh, they did a great job. They're going to do fajitas this year, is my understanding. So they're going to be Thank here. Uh, my good uh, friend Jeff Frederick, you know Jeff, right, from Maryland? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, he's coming. He's coming, and if you don't know Jeff, I know, invading the South. I love it. Uh, If you don't know Jeff Frederick, you should look him up on Facebook. He is one of the most talented people that I know on the planet, artistic-wise. He's a great guy. He's very generous. He um, does these uh, custom art pieces that are just museum-grade quality. He's done two for me. Um, they're absolutely incredible. He's done some with pencil. He uses pencils, markers, paint. He works in all sorts of medium. Uh, he had, he's very generous. He's, he's donated projects, uh, here at Southern Carpet Fest. He's donated projects, uh, Northeast Carpet Fest. He works in all mediums. He he can work in wood and he's just, he's incredibly talented. So if you get a chance, look Jeff Frederick up on, uh, Facebook because I've got a couple of his pieces here that he's done for me, and they're just they're unbelievable to look at them. They they look like they look like a picture. So really yeah, looking I have forward one to have pieces come down. You do? Yeah, he gave me one last year at, at Carpet Fest. It's a great, you know. He was kind of like, here, have this. It's kind of like a rough draft thing, but I think it's, you know. I think it's well beyond what he he kind of downplayed it. It's, uh, you know, he gave it to me. I'm very yeah. uh, very humbled that he would give it to me. Um, good yeah. stuff. It looks. That's his. My son wanted to touch it because the scales looked almost 3D. So he was he was yes. trying to figure out whether you know the his depth perception was off or not. I guess looking at it the way that <laughs> Jeff did the work. There. It's, it's very very good. Very good work. Very nice guy too. Very you know nice person. Just you know you talk to him. He's a super nice guy. So that's all awesome. super nice yeah, guy. These guys are coming he's down. Very, yeah. He, he's very generous. You know, all of the things that he, he donated here and to the Northeast carpet fest, they went on auction and they all went to the benefit of USARK. So, um, you know, I just can't say enough good things about him. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing him, uh, again down here. I, I saw him last time uh, in October at Tinley and, uh, I, I, I can't wait to, you know, to see him and, and to see really, I'm looking forward to seeing so many people coming down. I, you know, I, I love our brothers over at, um, NPR. Um, just can't wait to, to hang out with those guys. They'll be staying here at my house and then a bunch of other people on couches and cots and sleeping bags and air mattresses. And so it's, it's going to be a good one. Nice. Nice. I like how you referred to them as our brothers when, uh, you know, the real deal is, you know, we report those are the guys we awesome. report to. And, yeah, and uh, <laughs> I think we're going to be – we we have a corporate meeting at their place uh, sometime in the very distant future, and I think we're going to be – after we get the uh, the stats and the reports out of the way, they're going to let us come on the air and 
and and participate in one of their shows. Yeah, we're going to do their show uh, coming up here pretty soon. And then after that, the Northeast Carpet Fest is going to be yeah. held on June 3rd. And that's going to be hosted by, by Eric Burke. Uh, I'm going to be going. I know you're going to be there. Um, and that's always that's always a great, great time. And, um, you know, it's going to be in Eric's new house. And so I know I know he and in particular his wife are are looking forward to us breaking in their place. <laughs> I'm sure she is. Bunch of drunk snake people. Uh, yeah, she's. Um, I haven't I haven't met Eric's wife, but um, yeah, I'll just enough said. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that that that'll be a All great right. time. Um, yeah. What do you think? Well, uh, let's go through a couple of the MVF news stories real quick. I can't wait to get our guests sure. on, but um, we do we do look to like do like to look through the MVF news and and you know obviously the main theme when looking over the last month or so is is this is this is baby season, right? Yes. Yep. Yes, it is. We're uh, baby both of season. Our, both of our guests, baby season. Both of our guests are, are going to have clutches that um, they're going to be able to, to, to talk about. Uh, Dave D, God, he had that, that blue boy male that is one of my absolute favorite blue line animals. He fathered a clutch. I think it, I think it was maybe six or seven all red babies. I can't wait to hear about that. Um, Rich had a blue line clutch. It looks like it hatched in January. Can't wait right. to hear about that. And, and then I saw uh, a gentleman that I'm not familiar with, uh, Tommy Budway, who I'm oh, Rich yeah. is familiar with because Rich's male, one of Rich's male, sired uh, sired a, a clutch for Tommy recently, and so maybe um, maybe Rich can fill us in on a little bit of details about uh, the mail that he he sent over to Tommy. Um, obviously your clutches, I, I only knew about three clutches that you had, uh, not four. I mean, that's just, man, I'm, it seems like it's feast or famine, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, I always do three or four pairings a year, hoping I get two. So this year they all yeah. went, of course, probably, probably the year I have the least amount of time <laughs> to, to, to dedicate to, <laughs> to animals. That's how it goes, right? That's, Hey, they know, man, they know when you, when you're least expecting it. Right. So, and and then the yeah. other clutch that I saw looked really really good um, was John Irby's. Uh, yes. An incredibly awesome all red clutch. Um, what, were, what were those animals? Uh, uh, Soul Train. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he and Ben Evans did them. Uh, oh, is that right? Yeah. Yep. Soul Train and yeah, uh, so uh, Joe Joe Girl. I think uh, was the maybe the female that that laid those eggs. Right. Yeah, nice big clutch too. Nice and red. Was it? Yeah, mm. yeah, all nice and red. Red babies. They all, look, they all look like they're going to be keepers. So, good luck picking out the keepers <laughs> from that clutch, John. <laughs> yeah, we're we're going to get some advice about um, about picking out keepers, uh, at least red baby, blue line babies uh, tonight, aren't we? Yeah, I hope. That'd yeah, be great. I hope so too. Get the inside scoop from the guys yeah. that are doing it. Yeah. All right. Let's well, listen. Ready to bring uh, them on? 
I'm pretty much talked out. Okay, let's do it. Let's let's get to the, my favorite part of the show where we where we don't talk much. <laughs> uh, your favorite part, my favorite part, and the listeners' favorite part. Absolutely, they all fast forward the first for the through the first <laughs> fifteen minutes anyway. We we know that. Um, Rich Culver and Dave D, welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. Thanks for taking time um, to come and talk to us. Uh, you both are. You're both turned on, so feel free to uh, say hello to everyone. Good evening, everyone. Hey, Rich. Hey, how's it going, everyone out there? Good. Hey, guys. Hey, Dave, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys this evening? We're doing fantastic. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, I just want to... What's that, Bill? How's how's it in Colorado? Yeah, it's been really dry lately, so uh, it's a little concerning. The winter started out dry, and then we got a bunch of snow, and it's been really warm lately. So hopefully, we get more moisture. All right, all right. Yeah, I can never have enough of that in our in our snake rooms, can we? Mm-hmm. And never and have Rich, to worry about uh, that. Never have to worry about that over here in the rainforest of Tongass. <laughs> Where are you, Rich? Uh, for those that don't know, I'm located up uh, extreme Pacific Northwest, the uh, capital city of Alaska in Juneau. So, um, you know, we're situated right in the North America's largest uh, temperate rainforest, the Tongass. So we never have any issues about not enough water. You know, we get... I don't know. They measure it in feet, I guess. Uh, we get about oh boy. 10, feet, 10 feet of rain annually, something like that. <laughs> it's, it's basically rains almost every day. I'm envious for your chondros. I'm not envious um, for my for me personally. Yeah, that's what a lot of people say. Well, I think, the, you know, at least I get a continual supply of low pressures, and I think that um, to some degree... If, has an effect on the breeding up here. Yeah, a positive effect, obviously. Absolutely. You know, I had to dial in on a few other items, but I think that we'll have time this course of this evening to address some of those, and I'm sure Dave has some little things to discuss as well. Uh, sure. Very good. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, guys, we're going to start this as, as there's two of you, but we're going to kind of do a, a roundtable format between you two guys. So, um Dave, let's start with you. Why don't you just kind of introduce yourself a little bit, tell the tell the uh, the listeners in the audience a little bit about yourself, uh, maybe you know about your life outside of Condros uh, that you feel comfortable discussing. Sure. And yeah, my name is David Dendinger. People think my name is Dave D D E E because of the name I chose to use for Facebook, but that's not really my name. I'm an attorney. I work for a group of logistics companies here in Denver, Colorado. Uh, outside of work, I'm married. We have a French bulldog, no kids yet. Hopefully, we'll have one in the near future. And uh, in my free time, other than messing around with snakes, I snowboard a fair amount and I uh, I hike. Pretty much That's typical uh, Colorado lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yep. Nice. Yep. Enjoy the outdoors when I can. Nice. Rich, how about yourself? Yes, for me, um, as everyone knows, and if they don't, um, I live in Juneau, Alaska. I'm originally from California. 
I've uh, been up in Alaska probably the past 25 years. Um, I work in the school district uh, for retirement. Um, I'm an end-user technical support with Macintosh emphasis for the school district. Um, but I'm also a professional fly fisher, which I've been just, uh, in the early 80s. So a lot of my stuff is in fly fishing, writing, photography. I'm also um, an advisor for super yacht expeditions throughout the Inside Passage. Um, so I work with a lot of uh, super yachts that come through here on fly fishing programs. So that keeps me really busy during the, you know, the summer months. And uh, the other times, uh, dealing with condros, I'm happily married to a lovely wife, uh, Harriet. I have two daughters. Um, one of which is uh, studying pharmacy and vet medicine. So she's always a great help to have and a good second set of hands when it comes to administering meds or <laughs> sexing snakes nice. or things of that nature. And my other daughter, uh, youngest one, she's uh, living in New York City, studies dance, and she's uh, currently attending a um, performing arts program at a, a college in, in Manhattan. Um, and I always enjoy the outdoors whenever I can because, you know, you live here in, in Alaska. It's something you just want to do as much as you can. Uh, in fact, uh, yesterday, snowshoe trip because this snowed. Um, went to the rivers, but unfortunately, they were frozen solid. So I didn't get any fishing <laughs> in yesterday. No. So, well, that's uh, that's a very interesting uh, – sounds like you have a beautiful family, uh, in, very interesting lifestyle. When you say you're a professional fly fisherman, does that – I mean, do you give lessons um, or are you um, in fly fishing tournaments or what? I used to instruct uh, and, and, and host uh, programs, and uh, now as the body gets a little older, you could say, that right now uh, I work my way up, so I'm an advisor. Uh, I work as, as a rod designer. I evaluate products, uh, and then I give uh, presentations and slideshows, uh, discussions about uh, the local fisheries here in Juneau, and I'm also the Alaska coordinator for an organization called Fish Needs Water, and it's uh, a way to promote the sustainability um, of, of the fisheries here, cold water fisheries. By you know, we do a lot of catch and release, so sometimes we do catch for keep. But it's good to know that these fish need their water resource. So I work with that organization as well. Wow, a lot on your plate. It's a lot, <laughs> and that's why when you were talking about four clutches. Oh my God! <laughs> You're asking for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> Buddy has no comment. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, it is what it is. It, that's right. Uh, you know. Well. Um, I guess uh, Dave, why don't you kind of give us an overview of your uh, of your collection? I I know a lot about your uh, about your animals, but why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're keeping and maybe some of the the lineage uh, of the blue clowners you're you're working with? Um, why don't you why don't you tell us what you got hiding over there? Sure, I had kind of a mixed collection of snakes up until I was about 22. And then I sold them all. It was kind of a hodgepodge, not many pairs, just one of a lot of different things. And then about six years ago, I saw rough-scale pythons for sale on King Snake, and, and I had been having my eye on King Snake for a while, so that's kind of how I jumped back in with the rough-scale pythons. And in the process of doing research on them, I bought the more complete chondro because green tree pythons are 
um, their closest relative, apparently. Right. So I started doing research on chondros. I found the MBF, and then uh, I got my first chondro about six months later. So right now I have about 100 snakes, six rough-scale pythons, a jungle carpet python, and the rest are green tree pythons of various ages. About 40 or 50 of them are hatchlings and yearlings that I'm raising up, and the others are adults and subadults. I have quite a few blue line chondros. I have some from Brad Johnson at Brass Jungle of Orioles. He produced a few clutches in 2008-2009. Uh, so I have several from his male Sky, which was uh, a product of Mr. Blue in Carolina. So I bred him to several females, including Topaz and uh, Bluebird Grasshopper, Grasshopper female. Mm -hmm. So I have... Um, I think I have four or five from him. And then I have some blue chondros from Rico, from his uh, 05188 to 05086 pairings. And then um, also some from Christian Stewart at the barn, a.k.a. Herpetologic. He has uh, <laughs> a male called Blue Deuce. I think you have one of his offspring too, right, Bill? Um, I do. I, I actually lost that female after she uh, produced a clutch for me uh, last year. But yes, I did have one of one of Blue Deuce's offspring. Okay. Yeah, well, they had uh, Blue Deuce, and then they also had a, a male named Crazy. So I have uh, Crazy Lucy female, a Crazy Snowflake female, and then a Blue Deuce little Stevie male. And then I have a couple blue line animals from Rich, from his uh, some of his Dream Baby Mighty Blue males bred to two different females. And then I also have some calico chondros, which are kind of distantly related to some of the blue line stuff. Where'd you get your calico animals? I have some from Marshall. Um, they might all be from Marshall. Okay. Yeah. He, do you have uh, any? Little, do you have any? I'm sorry? Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, do you have any locality stuff? No, I don't have a single pure locality chondro. I have some crosses. I have a couple mm -hmm. Bushmaster chondros. So I have a F2 Arubiac male, and then I have a um, it's a Sarong Cyclops female. That's about it. And then some other crosses with some of the designer stuff, but I don't have any pure locality animals right now. Um, can you can you tell me? I mean, you may know that that your blue boy male is one of my absolute favorite animals in the blue line animals that are currently alive. Uh, what's what's the history on blue boy? Blue boy is from Rico. It's from uh, a blue Max Jarvis female. Bred to uh, Dave Prada Manikwari. So he's fifty percent okay. Manikwari, and the other and the other part is. Uh, Blue Line stuff. Blue Max Jarvis, that's uh, what that uh, a sibling to that female was the uh, the mother of let's see here, the sibling to that male was the mother of <coughs> Zeus and some of uh, Rico's other blue condors that he produced. And then Colin Guiley, he had a Blue Max Jarvis female, and that's or male that he bred to his Guy Topaz female, and that's how we produced Everest. So there's some good gotcha. blood in those chondros. 
boy, there, there, boy, there sure is. That's an understatement. Hmm. Fantastic. Um, Rich, uh, how about yourself? Um, Rich, how long have you been doing Condros? Uh, first of all, I'd like to say amazing stuff there, Dave. That's great. I'm glad uh, I was able to hear all of that. <laughs> uh, okay, now back to the question. Uh, for Condros, I, I got in, well, in two phases. I got in early right after college uh, with some uh, basins, but you know, naturally at that particular time, they were virtually all wild collected and I didn't feel comfortable with all that. So I took a big pause, got back in. Um, in, the, in around 1999, um, originally with, I got my first <laughs> Condra, a little PNG from uh, Rico. They've been between yeah. Rico and Greg back in the late 90s, early 2000. Then it just exploded. Then it exploded, um, and I, like Dave was saying, I just got, I had localities, I had rumored to be specific locales, uh, had some blue line stuff, had some mutts, and then had some high yellows, and then it just got overwhelming. I had, you know, I just, condors were so insane, I got totally caught up in the addiction and then I had to downsize a little bit and then I had to come back into a focus. So what I did is, uh, un- I say, unfortunately, as a joke, everyone's going to know that, um, spent a little time with Jeff Hudson <laughs> and Jeff uh, was sort of like, yeah, exactly. Jeff was like, he could sell a ball headed man a comb. So, <laughs> you know, when people ask me nowadays, if I accept reasonable payment plans, of course I have to, because <laughs> Jeff sure did. And I wouldn't have been able to establish the collections that I'd have now if it wasn't for those opportunities then. But, yeah, um, through Jeff Hudson and uh, our good friend Tim Morris, I was able to pick up a large amount of animals that uh, became my baseline for all my projects here that I currently have going on. But I'd like to go back to, to discuss when I said I was downsizing. I really, I really wanted to focus and, and, and refine my my objectives for condos. Naturally, I have an amazing fascination for these amazing uh, tree serpents. But um, as a biologist by education, you know, I started looking at it both as a hobby and then as some sort of intrigued project. And so I started looking into relationships of uh, pedigrees and uh, just wanted to, the, the blue, the blue line condor always was just, fascination of mine and it's I'm sure it's uh, for a lot of folks out there so I just wanted to focus on that particular line of animals and um, and, and study the various uh, genetic relationships of those particular animals and see if I can come up with some sort of similarities and then uh, work out various breeding lines and projects and and that's how things sort of unfolded over here at the ice house Rich, um, approximately how many condros do you have or are you keeping right now? I would say I have about 60 condros, of which, um, much like Dave, I'd say about 30 to 35 are in the, you know, eight-month to two-year-old range. And then I have a good core of breeders that I have that, uh, that, I'm, that I'm working with. And uh, is is all of your collection right now are they all blue line animals or do you have some other 
uh, mixed lineage stuff in there? It would be. I consider them all blue line animals, but they, you know, they might, depending on how far you go back, you might call them uh, mixed lineages. But I would say to sure. almost a significant part, they're all blue line animals. And they're all animals that I look at as they have a purpose in my projects. Um, when I look at my breeding projects, I'm not just breeding for the year. I'm breeding for multiple years down the line. Uh, and some of the, like a majority of my animals are, they've been hatched here and their parents have been hatched here. I'm to that point now where I've got like almost three generations of animals that I'm working with. You know, that's uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that's really um, a topic that I'm very interested in. Um, and that is the risk and benefits of keeping all of your stuff in-house um, versus trying to diversify your blue line stuff and bringing um, new animals into your collection. Uh, you know, I think we'd all agree that anytime you bring an animal into your collection, it, you're, uh, you know, uh, exhibiting a certain amount of risk when you do that. Uh, I just, you know, talking to a lot of people that have a lot more experience than I do, uh, you know, bringing in uh, adult animals can be can be very risky, not only to the adult animal that you're bringing in, but the animals in your collection. So how do you, you know, have you brought any uh, new blood into your collection or, or how do you handle that? Very, very, very good question. And I agree with you 100 um, percent. I am extremely cautious of what I bring into my collection. Um, I have a, now my wife calls it hers, but you know, Dumero boa that I had from when I was teaching high school. Um, and it stays in a completely, it stays downstairs and everything else is upstairs in regards to my condos. But I personally um, don't bring in any animals. I rarely bring any animals into my collection nowadays, but the ones that I do bring in naturally are for diversifying the bloodlines and synthetics still within the scope of my projects, but also I like to bring younger animals in. Uh, but now it's getting a little more difficult for keepers, myself, Dave, a couple other people that release neonates. So we try to get a yearling in there, and that's probably what I'll do if I bring in some animals. And they've got to be from specific people that I've known in the hobby and the industry for some time that I feel very, very comfortable with them. Um, friends, for example, like Dave, there's a handful of people uh, in, in the, in the conjure community and circle that we all know that um, I just, I respect them. I know that they do quality work. I know that their facilities are immaculate and I know that they don't treat their animals like a puppy mill. Uh, they have, they put com they're completely dedicated into the collections, but um those are the type of people that I would trust, so to speak. But um, I'm very, very, very careful of what goes in and out of my collection just because of the items that we just discussed and the items that you mentioned as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a pretty, I think that's a pretty common, you know, feeling uh, amongst people that have kept these animals um, for a long time. It's just uh, you can, you know, you can devastate a collection very quickly by bringing in too many too fast absolutely we've seen people unfortunately fall victim of that and that's that's pretty sad for the animals and their collection and themselves mm -hmm. well very good um both of you guys have already kind of hit on this 
kind of this next question uh, that, that we typically ask chondro keepers, but maybe uh, Dave, you can elaborate a little bit. You know, why did you ch- choose chondros to work with? I, I know, you know, you, you initially had your rough scales, and as you know, because I got my rough scales from you, they're a phenomenal animal to work with. How did you transition then from rough scales to keeping chondros just by buying Greg Maxwell's book? Um, well, growing up, I'd look at all the different reptile books, and there's always, there would always be a green tree python in there, and they had a reputation of being hard to take care of and bitey and all that. Um, so that, that always kept me at bay when I was younger, but once I found the MBF and I learned a bit, little bit more about him, I was comfortable moving forward, so I got my first one from Greg Stevens, and then uh, my second one I got actually came from Rich. It was just mm, nice. full steam ahead. I kind of went crazy buying them. I actually bought a lot of adults, which I don't think is a good idea. It's not something I'd recommend, but I got pretty lucky with that. I, I haven't had any die um, other than a female wow. this season from reproductive problems, but it wasn't because I bought her and she died. So, um, But uh, I like the variety of colors they come in. I like the onogenic color change. You never know what you're going to get. They're a little yeah, bit more that's challenging fun. than other species. Yep. Which um, I think some people find that off-putting. I kind of like it because I yeah, don't think yeah, we'll ever too. have them 100% nailed down. Um, their size, their small yeah. size is a plus. Their temperament, yep. actually, I think. A lot of people would say that their temperament is a downside, but out of my 100 or so snakes I have here, I only have one that's a jerk. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that and, and that may come up later um in our husbandry talk, but you know, Buddy and I had, you know, maybe three main goals when we when we wanted to start this show. Kim, please hold on one second. And one of them was to dispel the myth that chondros are aggressive and defensive and I'm like you. I've got, you know, probably 5% of the animals that I have just like my royal pythons, just like my carpet pythons, you got about five percent that are just you know dicks. The rest of them, mm-hmm. you know, are docile, easy to handle, and easy to take care of. Yeah, once they know you're not feeding them, they're pretty mellow. Yep. Rich, what about you? Uh, you gave us a little bit of uh, uh, you know your background in biology. Um, you kept you kept. Uh, animals other than chondros before you settled in and did did those exclusively right exactly i was um <clears throat> excuse me i was um had a number of collections of uh, rear fang snakes uh you know the hydrodynasties the false water cobras and some uh mangrove uh, snakes uh, prior to this and uh interestingly that um <clears throat> those particular snakes were not permitted in alaska and so <laughs> when i moved up here i I found out sort of uh, through the Fish and Wildlife Protection Team that um, I had to send those back to California. But the ironic thing about that is that you could only keep rear fang snakes in Alaska if you were a zookeeper or they were captive hatched here. So the state of Alaska was communicating with a zookeeper in Anchorage in regards to the best way to remove, to ship these uh, false water cobras back to California. And the zookeeper tells the animal Trooper, and he says, well, 
why are you asking me? Because ideally, you know, there's a real knowledgeable person who lives down in Juneau by the name of Rich Culver, and he should be the guy that you should be talking to. So the person that they were trying to get the snakes away from was the person that the zookeeper was saying you should take notes to. Go so talk. that was sort of how I got uh, known a lot about my snakes here in, in Alaska. But uh, similar to the same uh, things that Dave mentioned, you know, just uh, the, the size of these uh, chondros was was a little more handleable for me. Um, and then, you know, having uh, two daughters, my wife was saying, you know, you don't want to have any of those. You know the large type of reptiles in the house, which was good. But I like at that time, you know, I was extremely fascinated by the, the the wide variety of colorations that they would exhibit. But also, um, I was in the falconry, so I was into birds. But uh, uh, just being arboreal, um, to to know that uh, various evolutionary selection pressures gave way, root to life in the trees by these by snakes. And so we'll talk about that later on. But uh, that was one of the real interesting features of me, the life in the trees, life in the canopies. So yeah. these snakes, I started looking at them in that, that aspect. And I just, they, I just got overwhelmed. I just fell in love with these animals. And they, that's one thing led to another. Yeah, it's chondro fever. Absolutely. Buddy, what's next on what's next on our agenda here for these for these guys? Yeah, um, you guys hear me okay? Absolutely. Yep. Okay, good. Um, let's, Buddy, uh, I, I let's know you're in the keep chat rolling. room. I, I know you're in the chat room, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Okay. Yeah. All right. Trying to watch over there and see what's going on. Everyone, no one's. No one's been in there for a while, so they're they're dusting the cobwebs off, trying to remember how things work. So it's kind of kind of right. interesting to see that play out. But uh, real quick, Rich, we'll, we'll keep you rolling. Um, okay. For you personally, what's the what's the most challenging aspect of of keeping chondros? For me, um, it's got to be temperature. <laughs> yeah, you know, it sounds like a funny thing, you know. Uh, some people have it on the other end of the spectrum, but for for me, um, you know, I got this. Uh, beautiful and I was talked into it by Dave himself. I got this nice uh, habitat system incubator. Um, it's up here in my snake room. I, during the times I have eggs, it's cold. And even in my office, um, that heating system inside the HS incubator can't keep up. So oh, when it gets okay. to, when it, when the temperature drops below zero outside, um, I, I can't keep up. So Dave helped, gave me a little idea, showed me some stuff to do, a little insulation on it. And that helps us tremendously, but I actually have to then uh, put a supplemental heater inside my snake room just to bring the temperature, the room temperature up uh, because uh, I can't keep up with the cold temperatures in the winter. And a lot of my racks can't keep up with it either. So I have to mm, either wow. use uh, a vapor barrier, like a um, polyvinyl cl- uh, cover over the top, or the front of my racks, right? Or I'll sometimes I'll have to put, you know, a towel just just to put it in front of it, just to keep that heat within the rack systems. Um, so that's definitely uh, an issue here in Alaska is uh, the winter temperatures. Um, and then um, the other thing that's <laughs> one of the most challenging things is um, sometimes getting these babies to pee. And I and I use that word by sometimes because <laughs> as we as we all know, there's those ones that 
seem to have it have it understood. And then those those others that seem like, you know, I don't know what they're looking for. What would they do in the wild? You know, do they just mill around? Are they just there for food for other animals? Or, you know, but I would say that those, for me anyways, those are the two most difficult items. And in breeding, another thing that becomes difficult is the need to control our photo period up in Alaska. So mm. because when I, when I start my breeding, we're entering fall, so I got a very, very rapid um, loss of sunlight. So it's darker, quick. I might lose five to seven minutes a day of, of light. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens once I get into February. Um, I'm starting to gain light tremendously. So back in the early days when I was breeding, I would start, you know, everyone would start. I just followed the leader. Everyone would start in the late fall, October, but they were starting because it was cooling. I was starting just because I thought that was the time to start. Uh, and I found right. out that I, wa- I wasn't successful. And I was just scratching my head. I was going, why am I not successful? And I, and I attribute that to, for me, it could be completely wrong, but I attribute that to photo period. So what I started doing is I started to push my breeding season earlier so I wouldn't get in that big, if you look at it like a sine wave, that big steep drop in the curve uh, of, the, right. of the fall of daylight and then the increase on the other end of that sine curve of the increase of daylight. So if I pushed my breeding season earlier, I wouldn't be, it wouldn't come in those months where I had the steep uh, decreases of sunlight and then increases of sunlight. And then I also had to start regulating my own room with, with my own light lighting systems and curtains and stuff of that to just create the environment of 1212. Mm. So when, Rich, when do you start? I mean, when do you, what month do you start introducing pairs I start introducing pairs around the 10th of August, and that's when we start getting, as they say, it's going to rain until it snows. That's when the, it, just, <laughs> it will rain for 20 days straight, you know, monsoon conditions. And so I figured, what better time? It allows me to adjust my photo period, and it just gives me in just rainy season. And now that I start doing that, I, I'm seeing a lot more success in my pairing. And then me, I just wanted to see, I, I wanted to toy with that. So I said, you know, one year I said, okay, I'm going to go back to the old way and I'm going to start in October. And I had three pairs that failed. Not that, you know, small sample size. The year, two years before I lost two pairs. I didn't have two pairs. I have five pairs of unsuccessful pairing in three years. The middle year I dropped back to pushing in August and it was successful. So like I said, sometimes we just have to, you know, tweak and adjust our situations to accommodate the environments where we're at. And uh, that's just what I try to do here. But, uh, boy, that's a, that's a classic, classic example of, you know, reading your animals and adapting to your environment. That's yeah. of all the people, all the guests we've had on. And it's kind of funny that you introduced uh, that, that has been the most um, extreme difference in what we would call typical husbandry uh, that, that I've ever heard of. That's that's really wild. Very interesting. And like I said, like I said, I'm not saying it's perfect. It just allows me to get the job done, given the environment that these animals are in, and as you said, just observing each one of them and they're all little subtleties. Uh, uh, Rich, what about shipping animals out? Do you have trouble uh, with your temperatures safely shipping animals out? 
Not so much the temperatures, huh, Dave? Sometimes it's just FedEx getting them to you. I just thought I'd throw that yeah. out there. Just because <laughs> Dave and I had an <laughs> epic adventure one time. Um, I'm I'm pretty conscientious and careful in regards to my shipping. Naturally, I'm certified verified with um, FedEx, and I'm verified with Alaska Airlines. Um, and I I pack them. Unfortunately, because of Alaska and geographical location and being four hours off from the East Coast, it's always going to be a two-day two trip going across the country oh. or an overnight. Yeah, so I pack as best I can. I do the, the 72-hour heat pads, packs in there, and sometimes I'll put two on two different areas just so they can – adjust to the sides and move around a little bit. Um, and I prefer to go Alaska Airlines where I can. It's about 200 times more expensive, 200% more expensive. But, um, you know, they do guarantee the live arrival. Um, whereas I, I do mm-hmm. in general, but the guarantee comes on my butt, not the carriers. So between right. those two, you know, you know it, it does, you know, make the hair on the back of your neck stand on in when you ship an animal regardless I always do because naturally you know the well-being of the animal and also I just want you know, the, the customer on the other end to you know get that animal that he or she chose you know so it's those type of things but uh, for the most part I've been fortunate uh, on whatever I can but I've been, I've been relatively fortunate in regards to my, my shipping I'll mention one thing that I do ship only at certain times. Um, <clears throat> I, when I had that issue with Dave, I think I shipped in the fall, and they had a lot of deliveries leaving leaving the state at that particular time. Um, there's also a period of time when I ship Alaska in September, late September, because all the lodges are shipping all their salmon out, frozen uh, salmon. And right. um, if the plane gets too overloaded, they have to stop and put some of that stuff in Seattle. And I had them one time mm. stick a box of Condros in the freezer. Yeah, <gasps> I, I went over the top. Wow. Yeah, yeah. FedEx did that, not uh, not Alaska Airlines, but it, it got stored in the freezer, and I just went over the top on that. Oh my god! I know. So shipping Incredible. is an issue, um, but like I said, I've shipped. A large number of condros, you know, globally, even even the, uh, internationally, and I've only had four issues. One was a bummer, but the other three were issues, but they all had live arrival. Hmm. Oh, that's that's pretty that's pretty good. Uh, pretty good odds. Yeah. But then I also, and I don't know if the other people that do, and maybe I shouldn't be mentioning this. But I have a FedEx uh, account manager agent, and so when I had that issue with Dave, he was right on there. He got me inside numbers to contact, and he really helped out. And uh, so when I do ship with FedEx, I'm just fortunate to have uh, an agent that works with me with the numbers. He follows all my deliveries, and he personally follows all of my deliveries wherever I ship. So I'm fortunate to have that. Very nice. Very yeah, that's that's great info, um, Dave. I I can imagine that your uh, husbandry outside the box 
limits are a little bit different or, or a little bit less than riches, but do you do anything, I mean, outside what you would consider mainstream with keeping your animals? Uh, nothing too unusual. It's so dry here, so that's probably my biggest challenge is keeping them a little bit humid. A lot of people say that hydration is what's important, not humidity, but I think hydration is directly related to humidity because when a chondro respires and it's exhaling moist air and then it's inhaling super dry air, that's going to dry it out. So I have to humidify my room during the winter. And uh, I I also run it during the summer too, but on a lower setting. Um, Uh Recently I've started injecting mice with water. Hmm. Not just not just soaking them, but you inject them. Yeah, for for some females that have been uh, less likely to defecate, I've been putting about three cc's of water into the mice. I was worried that they'd explode when they were constricted or leak out, but it, it actually works pretty well. I've, I've seen a few people say they do that on online, so I gave that a shot, and it works pretty well. Um, so I don't mist at all. Keep my room humid. Okay. My cages don't have a whole lot of ventilation, but I use yeah. large water bowls. Yep. Other yeah, than I think that, our environments. Unusual. I think our environments, yours and mine, are probably pretty similar. Um, you know, Buddy. I know Buddy does not mist his chondros uh, where he is. My. Um, Ambient humidity year-round is very low here. I run a humidifier in my room. Um, I saturate substrate almost daily, and I do mist two to three times a week. Uh, Or if my animal is in their shed cycle, I I mist them every day. And that's what it takes for me, you know, to have good sheds. And I think that's a a very good point. I have not heard that before about – Humidity in the cage, you know, obviously hydration is is very, very important. Well, we, you know, we'd all love to see our condors drink more. That's a very good point about a dry humidity in the cage and the respiratory cycle that it could dry those animals out eternally, too. I, I had not heard anybody address that before, so thanks for bringing that up. Sure. Hey, Dave, real quick question. So where where do you put your injection site on that mouse when you fill them up with the three C's of water? I was just curious. Um, Kind of in their chest. Okay. But you don't want to go too deep because then it starts coming out of their nose. So kind of the, the chest around their arms okay. works pretty well. I was doing multiple injection sites, but that takes more time. and I, So I switched to one, and it, it doesn't really doesn't really make it any uh, more likely to pop or leak or anything. I'm going to give, it, I'm going to give that a go. Thank you. Yeah, it works well. Some of my females aren't very good at hydrating themselves. And another thing I notice is if they're, I, and this is a theory of mine, I don't know how much water it holds, but it seems like if they're dry and they're less likely to move, I don't know if they experience much of a dry season in the wild, but it seems like animals in general kind of hunker down when it's dry. So um, I've also put wet cypress mulch in a tub in cages just to get the humidity up, and that'll get my chondros moving. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I definitely have animals that tend to um, hydrate less efficiently than others. I, you know, I'm not out in my room at two or three o'clock in the morning very often when they're most active, um, but it just seems like because some do, they just never want to get to that water bowl, and um, so yeah, that's that's good stuff. Definitely. Buddy, let's talk about Dave, some what about line stuff, man. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go there. Um, so you guys have, uh, you know, Rich, you've been around a long time, and Dave's been over on the MVF. But there are some specific terms when it comes to blue chondros. They're, they're often labeled um, in regards to when they, they gain their, their blue coloration. Um, you know, and it doesn't matter which one of you guys take this question, but, you know, what's the difference between a true blue chondro and a super blue chondro? Um, I'll, I'll give my two cents. Uh, so I think like a lot of things with chondros, people can fight about it, what, what those definitions <laughs> mean exactly. But the, the gist of it is a super blue chondro is a chondro that goes from its neonate color directly to blue. And a okay. true blue chondro would, would be one that goes from its neonate color to mostly green and then gains blue over time and ends up more or less solid blue. And I believe Trooper Walsh was the person who coined those terms. Okay. Rich, do you have anything to add to that, or? Yeah, Dave um, laid it on laid it out on the line, you know, and and you know, True Trooper coined those particular terms of uh, the color change, and I think that a lot of, I think we all as keepers have to bear due respect to those those condor keepers that actually. Lay down the foundation, you know. All of us uh, contemporary condo keepers, I must say, still look back and read up and respect and uh, the work of these uh, condo keepers were before us. And I think that a lot of new hobbyists and new keepers that come in now should do the same. <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> so when you look at, yeah, exactly. When you look at the ter- term super blue and true blue, I think the thing that gets misleading when people hear those two terms is they look at it in terms of the description of the end of the, of what they're looking at and, and instead of the process of getting there. And I think that the right. those terms describe the process and not the, the overall picture of the adult. For example, you think super meaning above, above blue. So you could have a super blue chondro that is not necessarily as blue or deep as blue as a true blue chondro. And vice versa. So, you know, in those in that respect, um, you know, you have to look at the definition as it, it describes uh, the, the color change process. I've always had a hard time ingesting the, the the term or the coining of the term for the hormonal blue chondro. That's the one that I've always had a hard time because they call it hormonal blue. Well, at least because it's hormonally influenced, but from a biological point of view, um, don't hormones regulate everything? Yes. So then every so then every color is blue. 
I mean, every every color is hormonal. Colors. You know, if you want to go into right. that aspect. Uh, and but when we look at these hormonal blue chondros, we're usually most of the time we're referring to females after they bred once or twice. You know, in particular arus or something like that. Uh, Serranos do it a lot as well. And so, if that's the case, if we're going to look at it in regards to the after effects of a, a breeding or post breeding color that they still re- retain, then it's almost like it's a you know a breeding induced blue chondro would be almost a better term for me to accept. But you know, like I said, I, I acknowledge these particular terms what they are. Um, as Dave said, there can be a lot of fighting or bickering over those particular terms. Um, the one t- uh, time that we had an interesting conversation is one of my animals, 1217. Um, and we discussed this on the MVF uh, in the past, is that is it a super blue condor? It's completely blue, but it went neonate right. black and then black to blue. Ooh. Mm. So mm. what is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful. It's a cool. Beautiful that's what it is. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, uh, you know, for people who aren't familiar with uh, blue chondros, talk about a, a, a true blue or super blue. We're talking about the an area of a snake turning blue that normally wouldn't turn blue, like uh, an animal that's like a mainland type. They might have like a a, a blue stripe or some blue dappling. But you're talking like the areas that are would normally be green. These areas going blue, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, I will never forget. This is probably back in like 2002. Uh, a buddy of mine. We well, I'm not sure the year. I stand correct on that, but it was basically um, the Daddy Pants Tim Morris Blue Females first pairing that Buddy and and Tim did. And we got some right. of these little neonates. And we were freaked out because they turned white instead of started morphing green. Little did we know that was the start of the things you want to look for. You know, the little blue specks are kind of nice, but when things just start turning white all over, then they start transitioning to blue, and then then everything just starts making you smile. Um, yeah, so I look at yeah, I look at a lot of my you know I was just looking this morning when I was going through the rounds of my particular tubs, and I'm sure Dave can say the same. Is that um, fewer and fewer and fewer members of each clutch shows that green? It's they just lighten up and turn white and turn blue. So that's what I've been seeing. How about you there, Dave? Yeah, I haven't seen white. I've seen kind of a silver color, and that generally yeah. ends up blue. Also, sometimes yeah. it'll be pink or tan, or I've even seen some uh, brown that ends up blue. Right. I try not to use what? the the labels of super blue or true blue with my snakes. I just post a picture, and people could look at color change pictures and decide what it is to them, because I think there are a couple chondros that are super blue, no matter who you are, no matter what your definition is, like um, like Collins, get, um, Collins Everest, and then um, Frosty over at the barn owned by Danny Brado. Those ones right. were red, and then they gained solid blue scales, and there was never any yellow or very little black. So I think those are on the uh, one end of the spectrum. But then, like Rich said, sometimes you get something that go black, 
or sometimes you get some yellow and half the scales blue, but it's not a solid blue snake right off the bat. Okay. Right. So I got a question for you guys. Are these two terms, are they reserved for animals that come from blue line animals or can someone do a random pairing and out of luck have a chondro morph, you know, start turning blue right from the baby colors of blue, would they still be considered a super blue chondro, even though they don't have the lineage of, you know, the traditional blue line animals? I'd say yes. I haven't seen that. Maybe, um, Bill, your snake, it's black, and you know, um, the only other color I've seen on that is blue, so I think that one's borderline, but other than that, I'm not really aware of any... Um, there are several true true blue snakes out there that aren't from Trooper Walsh's lines, like Gary Schiavino. He has the Protomantic Warriors that he's been line breeding. Some of those are blue at 18 months. Um, the There's a snake called Arctic Blue, owned by right. Dan and Colette Sullivan at um, Snake Keeper. I'm not sure how that one morphed. It, it looks like a super blue to me. That one's a cyclops that was well cut. So I'd I've say, got yeah, it's more about the process. Like Rich, like Rich said, it's about the process, not necessarily the lines. But for the most part, okay. most blue snakes come from Trooper Walsh lineage. Dave, I've yeah, got I a wild caught. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Rich. No, I was going to say I agree with Dave. And, you know, if we're going to use – if we're going to – feel okay using the term about the process, then, hey, if it's just the process, regardless of the lineage, we're looking at the, that process from DNA to yearling or, you know, juvenile coloration. So I agree. Dave, I was going to say, I, I have a interesting uh, that you mentioned Cyclops. I, I have an adult, a five-year-old adult female that I've only had for uh, maybe 18 months now. That was that came in as a red neo cyclops locality type from Bushmaster, and um, she turned blue. Uh, there was, you know, uh, what you would I think consider a, a, a true blue animal. She went from you know red, uh, no green, uh, to and and she is she's ninety percent blue. She's electric blue, but I wouldn't dare to say that she was a blue line animal until I see the baby she produces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think she has a good you, shot if you put her with the right male. Yeah, but until you have the you know, the, the offspring from an animal um, especially a, a true locality type, which this animal was um, you know, it's really, really tough to make that no, like I said, I would never call her a blue line animal until I see the offspring she she produces. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of like Rex Maxwell's calico line. It's kind of a brand, so most people, when they say blue line, they're talking about Trooper Walsh's blue line, or, or the one that he helped promote because he acquired some snakes, uh, I think, from Al Zolich. That's where some of his founders were from, so but he was the one that really advanced it. Right. Okay. Now here's a confusing term for you guys and I don't even know how you would 
you know, it's kind of, I don't know, you often see high blue snakes, you know, kind of curious, you know, how do you, you know, where does that fit into everything? Um, and how do you, you know, what's low blue and what would be high blue, I guess? Do you want to take that, Rich? Rich can't take that question because he doesn't have any low blue. Yeah, I just but uh, <laughs> high blue, low blue. Yeah, I I think that for me, um, I and I don't want to offend or you know just I think that's you know we used to talk about marketing terms. I mean. Right. High blue, what you know? You can have an Aru high blue. You can have a Sarong high blue. You can have, and we just talked about the Cyclops high blue, or almost true blue. So, I whereas the other ones might be more uh, in reference to the process. I think uh, high blue might be more a term just the observation of the animal at that moment. I, I, I don't personally like to use those terms a lot. I sort of like uh, uh, Dave um, very, very diplomatic way of saying it. Just show some progression shots um, the animal and say this is it. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Yep. Yep. Now very Dave, good. what's your what's your take on the high blue? Uh, Greg Bexwell used that term in his book, and he used it in a way that included both true blue and super blue animals. When I think of it, I, I agree with what you said, Rich. I take it to mean a snake with a lot of blue markings, but not necessarily blue outside of its neonate an pattern. Exactly. Hmm. Very, very Guys, good. Um, good. Great information. One of the things that we talked about, um, Buddy and I talked about kind of uh, jokingly when we opened up the show was, you know, you guys have seen maybe more than than anybody else in the recent history of people that have kept and bred blue line chondros. What do you look for in your neonates um, as far as, you know, what get, what really excites you? Dave, I know you, um, you know, you, you've had clutches that you've held back every single animal until they've, until they've changed or, or changed significantly. Uh, Rich talked a little bit about looking for white. You know, wh- what is, what really excites you? And I'm not talking about an animal that's a year old. I'm talking about an animal that comes right out of the egg. What what really gets gets you excited about the potential of being a, a very high blue animal? I think you never really know. Any chondro from the clutch, as long as it's red, we'll probably talk about that in a little bit, but you never really know which one's going to be the standout. I'd say if it's brown or really deep red or nearly black, it has better odds than some of the other clutch mates, but I hold them all back because... You never know. I actually bought a snake back from my first clutch. I, When I bought the male that sired the clutch, part of the deal was that I owed the seller a hatchling. And so after mm-hmm. I hatched the clutch, I called him and I said, I want to buy this snake because I don't want to let any of them go. So <laughs> that's what I greedy did. bastard. 
crazy <laughs> faster. <laughs> okay, so, so all right. So, okay, so I, I understand uh, that logic, and I understand you've held a lot of those things back, so you've seen a lot of them change. What you've, I mean, talked about dark red. What about heavily patterned versus reduced pattern, uh, the difference in, in the yellow inside the red, you know, what What about any of that stuff? Uh, I haven't noticed a correlation between heavy and low pattern. Most of my snakes have had kind of a medium amount of patterning. I know with calico animals, reduced pattern with small or no dorsal markings, That's that seems to be a good indication that they gain a lot of black, but I haven't really seen that with blue chondros. If I had one with orange saddles, that would probably make me want to hold it back, but I haven't really seen that to be an indication that the snake's going to turn blue. Okay. Uh, Rich, what about you? Do you hold back all your all your neos? I, I hold back a fair share. Um, the way I look at my neos is once again, I reflect back um, on where my project is and where my projects have been going. The two particular found lines or bloodlines that I've been working with are those that 2001 Hudson Dream um, Lemon and then a variety of animals from Tim's, Tim's work with the legend. Um, 2793 and um, John Hyle Holland's, you know, blue, Mr. Blue. So that said, it seemed like the Morris animals that I've been working with seem to have the more chocolatey, dark, and, and, and deep brown uh, neonates coloration. Interestingly, it's funny because when I first bought uh, my my the neonate from uh, Hudson from, uh, from his green lemon clutch, um, the late Brett Messerman and I bought one each. Um, and Brett and I had this conversation because we were going, Jack wasn't the best of bookkeeping or, you know, record. We are looking at these animals right. and going, man, these things look like $75 Bushmaster Beox. They're brick red, <laughs> brick red with big saddles, you know. So we're looking at, gosh, did we get taken? Because everyone knows that, well, Jeff had quality animals, but he sure had his prices for them, too. And so while working with the Dream Line and the Dream Lemon Line, they were more of a brick red. And then working with the, the Morris group and that Tripper group, they're more of the dark, dark brown and chocolate babies. So then having worked with those two together, when I'm doing – those are the two lines I'm working with and relationships of those – I'm noticing that there's a portion of them are brick red, a proportion of them are deep, dark, and brown. Well, those browns, I'm getting a uh, sort of a continuum of low, you know, reduced patterns to really pronounced patterns. And then, you know, the vertebros go from very yellow to almost white. Um, I found that the white patterned ones give a, you know, if I was going to look at them, tend to give a more aqua green with a little bit of powdery blue undertones um, but I really haven't seen as Dave mentioned a true relationship that I can pinpoint um, with the exception of and I'm hoping this year 
I'm looking at because right now I'm starting to do a few repeat readings and I'm looking back at all my images and I was just trying to see if there was any relationships between clutch one neonate patterning and clutch two neonate patterning. And so I'm just trying to look at and explore those relationships. Naturally, you know, if we could get clutches so quickly, we'd be able to have enough uh, data to look at. But when you're looking at four years <laughs> of uh, in between time, um, you know, and then you have all these other males, you go, man, that female would be great to breed with this one. This one's good to hear. But, you know, you want to try to get some relationships and some empirical data that you can look at and try to draw some inferences from. But um, as a present, um, I haven't known any relationship right off the back that allows me to specifically which neonates I want to hold back. And it sounds kind of funny because the ones that I usually don't hold back are the ones that feed well because I want those great feeders to go out to <laughs> the people who buy them. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, listen, you, you guys have been very unhelpful. <laughs> In your magic, you know, your magic secret about picking out which one's going to be the most blue animal. I just just want to throw that out there. If you breed I, I them, you have to keep them all. And if you buy <laughs> one, buy a changed one, and then you know. <laughs> I know that's your philosophy, Dave. I, I know that. What's your question, buddy? Um, sure, I want to know. So, you know, the you guys are refining the, the blue chondro. Um what what percentages would you say are you guys seeing now of from from you know the clutches that you guys have hatched the animals that that morphed to blue, you know just you know ballpark figure. Uh, twenty twenty five percent. Okay. Of a blue line blue line to a blue line animal, you'll get twenty five percent that that turn significantly high blue. I would say. Some some clutches even better. Sure. My I've I've had only had two chains so far. My first clutch was twelve hatchlings, and six of them were blue of varying degrees. And then about two months ago, I had another clutch change. I only had six hatchlings in that clutch. Four males and two females, and all four males have a considerable amount of blue, and uh, the females have a little bit of a bluish wash. Guys, um, this is not this is not a question that we had kind of put on the outline, um, but it just uh, I just wanted to ask you guys what what are your theories about blue line animals that are not blue reproducing? Do they have a increased chance of producing blue offspring compared to a non-blue lineage animal? You gonna take that I first? I think they do. Sure. I think they do. I think um, we've seen that with animals in the past. Rico had a male from Mr. Blue Carolina. It was one of the greenest from the clutch. He bred it to the a PNG female, and he produced 05188, and then 05188 went on to produce three super blues and several borderline super blues in a clutch. There are some other green snakes that I'm aware of that have produced really blue snake too so I think you need to look at the parents of the green snake and its siblings and also further back maybe it's grandparents and see how concentrated it is 
and I agree 100% with what Dave said, and that's pretty much uh, describes what I've been doing. Um, I think, um, just as Dave said, if you can look at um, possible clutchmates, parents, and I'm a firm believer of skipping a generation and looking back as well. Um, and so taking that, you know, look at the skip generation. I always look at that. I look at um, clutchmates and I look at siblings. And then if I get, if I actually can get the opportunity to actually observe a, a, a bloodline pedigree, um, I try to look at, both sides uh, that are of the of the pairing, the sire and the dam, and see if there's any component parts of pedigrees. As as you start looking at these blue line pedigrees, you're going to see that various branches are within branches that are within branches in 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 similar animals. And so, look at those relationships. And I also like to see how far back blue animals were in the pedigree. So if they were like five generations back, I don't like that. But if they were just one generation removed, or two generations removed, I think that uh, really adds a big significant punch to your to your overall goals. I like your um, skip generation comment. That's a that's a pretty common. I mean, you're a biologist. That's a pretty common phenomenon mm-hmm. in um, genetics. You know, throughout. Absolutely. And so Absolutely. I, I have not heard I have not heard that theory. Um, about chondros before, but I like it. I think it's a very valid theory um, that maybe doesn't hold merit based on pure scientific studies, but I think it's a very good, um, you know, uh, just a very good thought process. I think it's a good way to look at some things, especially since now I'm getting the opportunity of having third generation animals. So I can actually do that. And so I've I've seen, you know, I've I've had the great grandparents. I've, I've I bought those and I've hatched out three generations now and I'm starting to, you know, see some relationships. I'm also starting to, you know, I was going to talk to Dave about that, you know, and unfortunately with some of these smaller clutches, I've had, I've dealing with a six member clutch too. Um, but, you know, you start to get some of these clutches of 20 or, you know, 16 to 24 animals in a clutch. And I think, you know, I'm starting to see, especially with, with the blue line animals, you can, uh, um, be interesting to see what Dave says or what he's noted in regards to this, but uh, there's almost like a continuum of coloration um you know you'll get the one that just starts 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 a little more blue a little more blue and then boom there's the animal with all the blue then you'll see with some various patterning on the back and um are you seeing some of that dave in any of your clutches like a continuum of coloration or progression of coloration yeah i think they change different times and in different ways and there are also different shades of blue some of them are more silverish some of them are sky blue and, and some of them are pastel blue exactly yeah, some of them are green, and then they turn blue shortly thereafter. <laughs> yep. I think some Very of them can be blue and then gain green. You never really know. Exactly. Goliath was a good example of that. Hey, guys, before uh, we – believe it or not, we're rolling right through this show. We have 36 minutes of live airtime left, and we can go after that. Um which, you know, we hope that we do. But um, I do want to show some respect to our folks in the chat room, and we actually have a couple questions that I'd like to try to get answered so the folks that are in the chat room that are listening can can get an answer to the questions. The first question, actually, Dave, is for you. 
and the the person is Justin, he, and he wants to know: Do you cool your animals for breeding? I do. I don't cool them dramatically. I cool them down to the mid seventies. Sometimes I cool them, but, and then I introduce them. I don't have a whole lot of ex- experience doing this, so I'm just trying different things and trying to hone it in, figure out what works best. But uh, sometimes I introduce when I cool. Sometimes I wait. Okay. All right. And then the uh, second question is for both of you guys, and it comes from Brian Fisher. Um, you guys probably both know Brian from the MVF, but uh, he wants to know. He, and I'm going to read his question verbatim. So, where do you guys see the future of the blue line, and do you have any new and unique ideas of where to take it in the future? And he gives examples, you know, specific locality or designer line outcrosses. You want to answer that one, Rich? Okay, I I, I think. Although um, we're seeing more and more blue line animals, in particular super blues and true blue animals um, being produced, um, but still they're not in the frequency with which one can predict, but still leaves that allure out there. Um, So that leads me to think that the blue line chondros are still going to be sort of um, a trophy at the top, so to speak, in terms of those keepers who want to try to hatch their own. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I think that the way that it's 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 sort of like what care it, for those people that want to hatch their own blue line color. I know I speak to you know, handfuls a day, you know, the people that are, uh, that uh, either email me or call me and we talk about that. And they, you know, then we start naturally start talking about, and it's probably going to lead to another question, but um, it's blue line chondros. You could either buy refined genetics and, and, and see yourself going forward with it, or you can buy animals and, put in your time and you might not ever get there. So I see blue line chondros as being more available, but still the uniqueness and the allure and the predictability of, even though you have blue line chondros, are you going to be able to, uh, is the compatibility of that pairing going to yield animals? Cause every time I get an animal that dies full term in the egg, I go, what's that my blue one? <laughs> or you get that one, or you know what I mean? Or you get that one that doesn't feed and you've worked with it, you've worked with it, you've worked with it. And I might be sending a couple down to Texas, um, but you work with it, you work with it, and then it passes, and it passes away. You're, I know you're probably saying, send it on down, and it passes away. You say to yourself, was that the blue animal? Now you've got three left, right. but you started with seven. And so it's a lot of those little things going, going through your mind when you have them. But I think the direction of blue, the blue line chondro is it's uh, – it's still going to be out there. Uh, I just don't see us refining it yet. Where does it go? I would love to see integrating it with some um, some of the other colors, colorations that we have. Uh, a deep black and yellow blue would be pretty wild. But, you know, there's something to be said about a turquoise blue chondro with vibrant yellow vertebros staring at you. <laughs> it's, just, it's just something about right. that. Right. 
I'll play um, devil's advocate about your animals that maybe didn't, um, you know, didn't hatch or they didn't feed well. You know, maybe an incredibly crazy blue animal is genetically weak. You know, I mean, I think you have to, you know, the, the, these animals in nature are, are not supposed to be bright blue animals, and that's for a reason. And so, no, maybe, maybe they're not feeding well or they're, or they don't get out of the egg because they're not supposed to. It sounds like you're shouting shit, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) I've always heard from a few of my friends that are in the importing and exporting of chondros um, that these wild collected blue ones from his discussions with some of the natives could be wrong if those are mutants they just stand out the reason they fight they have a blue animal is that they're looking green all of a sudden this blue thing shows up hey might as well take that too um and so you know we're getting to one time i was having conversations earlier about arctic blue and it's just the one in a million mutation that's the way that this guy described that animal when he brought it over Well, but that's the beauty of keeping, keeping these things in captivity it's the beauty of keeping them in captivity is is they they are not um, suspect to the usual uh, prey, you know, regardless of human prey or, or non, that they are uh, in the wild. I agree. You know, and also I wanted to come back because I always tend to hear this, and, you know, this goes back to a decade or so of good debate on MBF back in the old days um, in regards to – Poor feeders, blue animals, calicos, inbreeding, uh, and things of that nature. I heard a couple of chuckles because you're probably been participating in that debate back then too. Um, but right, you know, I personally, with within my animals and my limited experience of um, clutches, which have been a been a good a number, um, but I personally have not noticed, and this is just with me. Um, what I would call or say is a significant difference in the terms of the willingness of these babies to, to accept their meals. Um, maybe I'm becoming a better feeder for neonates or um, the bloodlines are refined over a course of generations, but I personally haven't run across this, um, but I always hear this. So it is interesting. I, I, interesting in hearing uh, some of uh, Dave's uh, input and, and, and without, you know, and, and what he, what he feels about that, because like I said, I personally, and I, like I said, when I first started off, I had, um, you know, locales, I had high yellows. Um, I had stuff from Rico. I had a bunch of BNGs. I kept um, a yellow Beox, a green Beox. Uh, it got overwhelming. Um, and um, yes, everyone likes uh, a 12 or 13 gram neonate right out of the egg because some of those bigger ones <laughs> a little easier to get a one day old pinky in them. But um, I've had some frail looking six grammers come and um, they've done pretty well too. So it'd be interesting to hear what you have to say, Dave. I've been through a lot of the old threads, and I've seen what you mentioned, Rich, where people say, yeah, there was a blue line clutch, and it was a train wreck, and there were half of them died, the other half were impossible to get feeding. I don't have a lot of um, basis for comparison from my own experience, because 
most of the snakes I've produced thus far have been blue line, but from observate, uh, observing other people and their clutches, I think it doesn't matter what the line is. People just have problems with, uh, with chondros and snakes in general, and I think it's more likely due to something like incubation temperatures or the condition of the female than the particular line. I think you're right. I I would agree 100%. I mean, we've all heard, whether it's uh, myth or fact, that, you know, some of the more docile, even locality types, like a ruse, are harder to get started, or, or coffeos are harder to get started, and, you know, the biox are easy to get started because they're defensive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I will just throw one thing out there that um, every carpet python breeder that's ever produced albino carpets will attest to. Albino babies are significantly harder to get started than non-albino babies. Yeah. So, you know. Maybe the difference... It may, yeah. Maybe the difference there is that that's a specific gene, whereas blue line chondros, it's polygenic, it's multiple genes, so there could be a, a gene tied to that albino carpet python gene, or maybe it's related to their eyesight being poor. Yeah, yeah. We'll, absolutely. We'll never really know, but... Yeah. So, Dave, back to Brian's question, How you know what do you see as you know, the future of blue chondros or blue line chondros and you know, do you foresee, you know, intermingling other designer types with your breeding projects to create, you know, the Dave D designer chondro or anything along those lines? I think there's a lot of room for refinement and consistency. Just producing snakes that are as nice as the best blue examples right now and, and having that be more consistent. Other than that, I don't really have any goals in mind. I think black and blue would be cool, but right now it's just working on consistency. A lot of really blue snakes, when you zoom in or you look at a a, a macro photo, and they have green flecking, so there's still some a ways to go to get totally solid blue snakes. Very good. Buddy, I know um, you wanted to ask this question, and it kind of uh, is a segue into that. It doesn't sound like um, either Rich or Dave um, has been breeding their blue line stuff with locality-type chondros, but if they, if you were to, which – you know, which animals do you think, if you had, let's just say an example, you you, you had a, a nice blue line male, you didn't have a blue line female, but you had access to some locality specific animals, what what would you, what do you think uh, would be the best chance to produce some really cool blue animals? You know, would you breed it to a biak, an aru, a, a, you know, a, a manacori, you know, what what would you guys do? Well, I, have, oh, excuse me. Go, you go, go ahead, Rich. Sorry. Uh, no problem. Um, down those manicories, I always seem to 
provide some intrigue to me, but um, it seems like sarongs have been used in there as well. So, you know, because I was just looking at uh, my blueberry grasshopper female. It's crossed to a sarong. Okay, I'm looking at that. Um, she's, she's a beauty. And then, um, you know, Greg Maxwell, I don't know what Blue Diamond was. Was she, you know, is she a Jaya? Oh, but, you know, when produced with Aquaman, she did some good stuff as well. Um, and then I was just looking at uh, one of um, some of my documentations that I got from one of uh, a blue female that I got from Tim uh, that he calls uh, Tim Moore's Blue Female 3. Um, you know, she's uh, the product. Uh, her dad was uh, the legend, 2793. And her mom, the dam, was the Steve Gordon's blue female, but Steve Gordon's blue female was a cross between a F1 sarong type that Tim had, and the male was a full sib to Mr. Blue. So he, Tim, at that particular time, in, infused that sarong in there. So those are probably the two that you know that strike out right away for me if I was going to still, you know, stay on course of my blue line projects. Hmm. I'm sure there's okay. just awesome. Insane these uh, conjures are. I'm sure there's others, but those are two that just strike out for me. Maybe toss in an R as well. You? Really nice. I'd go with uh, yeah. You like know, said, a yeah, northern yeah. mainland animal mm-hmm. that was yeah. a red hatchling. Yeah. So sarong, yeah. <laughs> cyclops, manic warrior. Um, I know the the new blue animals from Bushmaster. I think one was a Jayapura, and the other one. This wrong. I don't remember, but I'd go with the red, um, northern, absolute, mainland. Yeah, 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 yep, yep, yep. Very, very cool stuff. Um, have you guys seen much in the way of when you guys were producing blue line animals? What percentage of the clutch, or any, do you have any yellow babies that pop out? Nope. I haven't either. <laughs> well, okay. That's a that's a simple that's a simple answer and we can move right along. No yellow baby love. <laughs> no no yeah. yellow baby love. No that's yellow baby love. That's killing Matt Morris. I know it is. Yeah, I don't he's, even know. He's crying. <laughs> I've heard people say that the reason that blue condos are red is because Trooper liked red babies, so that's what he focused on. But I'm not even sure it would be possible to produce a super blue with a yellow because I haven't seen a snake that I would consider to be a good starting point, one with blue outside of its DNA pattern. When you see blue on yellow hatchlings, it's generally the pattern, and the pattern is red. So I suppose you could selectively breed for more pattern, but you'd eventually end up with a red snake if you did it, you know, a mm-hmm. thousand generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that's probably the mainstay. Most, um, most people would, would say the same, that it's, if, if you want a blue or you want a black animal, you start with a red Neo. Mm-hmm. I've seen some imports that you could tell were yellow that have a lot of blue. But to me, the blue doesn't look like it's naturally occurring. It looks like the result of trauma or maybe 
overexposure to ultraviolet light because the blue is only on the top of the head or along the spine, mm. but it's not along the sides where the coils touch. It just it doesn't look like something that would be reproducible. Hmm. Um, I guess, you know, kind of going down, we're, we're getting pretty close to closing out the show. We've got about 19 minutes of um, of live time left. Um, and this can be kind of a touchy subject, uh, but it's on our agenda, and I think it's worth discussing. Uh, it's the demand for blue chondros. And, you know, the obvious answer is there's a high demand. But... You know what? You know every new person that I talk to that wants to get their first green tree, they say, "I want an animal that's high blue." They have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they have no idea what that really means. And so, what are what are your guys' thoughts um, about who? You know, how high is the demand? Who is it that, t- that typically contacts you? Are they established people? Are they noobs that have never had one? You know, what are the what are the messages that you guys get? I get the whole spectrum. Um, uh, you know, people like you said, first time chondro enthusiasts, they immediately say, "Hey, I understand. I heard you have blue chondros. Got any available?" And then. I give them a little intro. We talk a little bit, share a few emails. I try to get an understanding of who they are, learn about them, and then once they hear the price, some of them just drop off the planet. Um, you know right away when you got someone that's, that's uh, you know, you either they mentioned that they referred to you by a credible friend or, or reference. Um, for the most part, you know, they're serious. When they contact me, at least for me, um, they're serious, and, and if I can't, you know, like I said, there's only a handful of people that I do this with, but if I can't accommodate, and I know they're serious, and if I can't accommodate them, then I naturally pass them off to, I've got like two or three people, Dave, I'll admit it even on there, that you're one of them that, um, without hesitation, um, I direct people your way because I'm well aware of uh, how meticulous you, you are in regards to your collection, your animals. We've shared conversations, and... Um, and so, you know, I, I, I get, I get, you know, my share of um, inquiries. Um, like I said, uh, you can immediately right away, at least for me, know who the tire kickers are and the, and the people that are serious. But also, even if they might be serious, um, and I hope people don't take this wrong or incorrectly, um, but uh, I, I, I'm really careful with whom I like to sell my condos too because after rearing them i like i said after you know taking care of their parents uh i know the commitment um which doesn't feel like a a, a tremendous commitment because we all have this uh deep-rooted passion for these animals but i i i I don't like because i've had it happen i don't like it when i sell a condo and to see it sold again immediately like within within six months i mean that's not even a quarantine time Mm -hmm. um and so you know I like to get to know the people. I like to sort of, it's not an interview, but, you know, these animals are really special. Uh, and so I, I take yeah. it that way uh, when, when, I, when I discuss uh, possible sales. Well, Rich, I think that's a, an excellent point. And, and to even um, 
expound on that. I, I just would have such a hard time selling a an expensive uh, blue line animal or any designer animal to somebody, and it's their first chondro. And, exactly. And I've had people, you know, I've had people, and I know you have, and probably every every one of us, and then anybody that's bred chondros have had that person that's you know can afford it, they can pay for it. Uh, they've got the the funds to do it, but it's their first chondro, and you know, mm-hmm. I'm just like, no, you know, you, it, I'm not going to sell you this designer animal as your first as your first chondro. Exactly. They seem to be in pretty high demand. I think a lot of people are attracted to blue snakes because it's unusual. You don't see too many blue snakes out there. I think. Um, Rhino rat snakes could be blue, and there's some vipers out there that are blue, but for the most part, blue snakes are rare. Like Rich, I haven't had a whole lot of tire kickers. Most of the people who contact me have had previous experience with the chondro. So that's good. I think I, I probably would sell one to a first-timer, but I'd really want to know what they were going to do with it. I'd want to see pictures of their enclosure and, and speak with them mm. at length. Because the last thing I'd want to do would be ship a really nice snake to someone, have it, have them kill it, and then have them talk crap about me to everyone. So well, that's the thing, right? You know, that, right. That's the thing. If that if that animal does not do well, you know, and everybody has different um, policies on what they're willing to to guarantee an animal, um, but uh, you know, I, I I would guarantee the animal. You know, whether, mm-hmm. whether it's a week or a month, um, I would guarantee that it's going to feed for them. And if they don't know how to feed a chondro, um, you know, I'm just putting myself and the animal at risk. And I, I just wouldn't, I won't do it. Yeah, the not feeding thing is probably the scariest part because they don't always settle in right away after shipping. So if it's someone who doesn't have experience with that, they they might start panicking after a week. And I think once that happens, sometimes people have a tendency to just keep pestering the condor and try to feed it every day and it just every makes day the situation right. worse. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's, and the, their level of panic goes up exponentially depend, based on the price of the animal they purchase from you as well. <clears throat> oh yeah. You know, and, you know, it's, you, you can't teach someone patience. Um, it's, a, you know, it's a learned, I believe it's, it's something that you learn and, you know, I'm definitely a much more patient person than I was 10 years ago and certainly 20 years ago. And I think, you know, particularly with a new keeper, usually they're, you know, they're, they're, they're still at least compared to me. And I'm assuming you guys are close to my age. Um, you know, so they're, they live in a fast pace. Everything works now for them immediately and they don't have to wait for a lot of things and trying to teach them, you know, that these animals, you know, they're not corn snakes, so, you know, you ship them, you know, you set them up and you, you know, make sure they have fresh water in a clean cage and forget about them and, and, and you know, and, and try to feed them in a week or two and, and you know, just you know, leave them alone. And people just don't want to hear that, you know. can't tell you the number of people that I just refuse to sell snakes to because they want to put it in a, you know, take a neonate or a six-month-old chondro and they want to put it into a, you know, three by four by four enclosure and you know and i just refuse to do it and you know and they get upset because they have the money and 
you know, people don't, I guess, what Rich alluded to as well is, you know, there's a lot of time we all put into our animals, regardless of the price of them, that, um, you know, it's it's an effort to get, the, you know, get them to breed and have babies and establish babies to the point that they're feeding regularly. And it takes, you know, it's, it takes effort and time. And, you know, we all have a connection to our animals. And, you know, for me, you know, I'm sure you guys are the same way. They're, they're not objects, you know, they're a living creature and they need to be respected. So, you know, I need to make sure that, you know, and you guys sound like the same way, you need to make sure that that's going to happen where they're going. And, and people are often turned off by that fact when you say, you know, no, I don't think this is going to work out. Absolutely. Yeah, and we're all trying to um, propagate the message that these things are not, they're not the evil monsters that are impossible to take care of. Uh, but if you send one to somebody that's not ready for it, then it will propagate that message that they're impossible to take care of. And, you know, none of us want that. We want the opposite. Absolutely. Do you guys feel that there's often a lot of negativity with the blue line animals? Like a lot of people may say they don't feel they're, you know, they're worth the, the price that you charge and, you know, how do you guys handle that situation? Because, you know, there's been threads on the MVF, and we see things on uh, Facebook. You know, people post up, you know, spectacular blue animals, and, you know, people always want it. They, that's what they want. They want a, a very nice blue chondro, and a lot of times they see the, you know, someone says, hey, you know, just say no to the animals and go for this price range, and then they they start down this road of, you know, no, you know, no animals worth that type of stuff. How do you guys do? You guys deal with that negativity, and if you do, how do you, how do you handle it? You taking that one, Dave? Sure. <laughs> I see those comments occasionally, but I don't think it's super prevalent. I generally don't get involved when I see that sort of thing. Okay. Um, I don't I don't think that blue condos are any better or any worse or easier or harder than any other condos but their their price is dictated by basic economics there's a limited supply and people want them so that's how that goes Exactly I I agree with Dave dead on you know and I, and, and how do I deal with those comments hey it rains a lot where I live I just let it bounce off my back you know um <laughs> <laughs> Exactly just let it bounce away you know I I think I, I totally agree with Dave that, you know, aside from the fact that the availability of the blue condos, they are still condros. They're still amazing, fascinating animals. And one can learn as much with locale animals, you know, high yellows, if not more. And, and you know, with respect to each particular um, color coloration, um, once again, they're just, they're still chondros, um, regardless. And so, um, they're still precious. They're still beautiful. Um, I think the one thing that people said a lot about mine used to be a joke. It's that, um, that my animals are sterile, uh, you know, once again, the hmm. mis, uh, misunderstanding or perception that, uh, they're all highly inbred. Um, we, we touched on those issues. Um, but I, I don't let I don't let it bother me because it seems like through year after year my condos are reproducing so I'm not I don't have to really worry about worry about that and like Dave I just I don't see it that much I don't visit Facebook that much and um, those 
issues that do come up, uh, I, I feel they're just minimal. Great. I've seen what about people guys? say that they're. Go ahead. I've seen Dave. people say that they're inbred. Um, they're somewhat inbred. Nearly all blue chondros have Mr. Blue or Mr. Blue Sire. 2793, a.k.a. the legend in their pedigree. But there's also mm-hmm. been a lot of outcrossing <clears throat> since then with P&G, Manic Wari, Bayak, uh, the new blue stuff from the Bushmaster farm. Rico crossed it with Vinsky. Rich, Rich's snakes are crossed with Dream and Lemon. So there is some tie in them back to Mr. Blue and 2793, but they're not all that closely related. And if your goal is to create a snake with unusual coloration, some amount of line breeding or inbreeding is going to be necessary. Exactly. I agree with that, David. And, you know, I've always said to myself, you know, as I, you know, once again, that biology background, I say to myself, well, how, let's, let's look at this for a second. How mobile are arboreal snakes? Now, not very and well, that would be interesting to know that. And then now, being insular on these islands, <laughs> how, I, I, you know, with the exception of seeing a few rattlesnakes swim across a couple of rivers when I was fly fishing, I don't, and a couple of garter snakes or some water snakes and some stream. I don't usually see snakes swimming, especially island to island, with the exception of some of the aquatic snakes. But you know, relatively speaking, an arboreal, arboreal snake is. You'll have life in the canopy, and I think that even in the wild, there's a pretty good degree of inbreeding. It's just the way it is. Yeah, agree. Point. Yeah, you know, whether it's a locality or designer type, you can't have you know if the locality if localities are valid. Um, in order for that locality to be phenotypically different, there has to be a high percentage of inbreeding going on to express that throughout the population. Exactly. And, and, you know, so, you know, either, you know, designer types or locality types, even as a species, they have to inbreed or they're not a species. You know, the species (laughs) came about from inbreeding. Right. Right. So you have to look at all that. Um, Gotcha. Look at all that in there. But, guys, this is a great topic, and I want to stray just because I want to just make sure we get these out there. we got two more questions from the chat room, and um, it's from uh, Doom Trooper Mike Flemmel. He wants to know, you know, Rich, what are your thoughts about UV? Um, do you, you know, cons, do you use it? You know, I... I would like to personally learn more of it, which shows you that I don't use it. Um, okay. I, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm open to, I'm always open to learning, you know, being in an academic environment all my life that I just love, that's part of the reason I love it. Um, so with respect to the UV, I'm completely naive. Um, I don't utilize it. Like I said, I use um, uh, general lighting uh, here in my office. And then I use a lot of natural lighting and skylights. But uh, other than that, um, I'm, I'm, I'm up for learning. Okay. Dave, do you have any, any, questions, any thoughts on UV light? 
Hypochondros? I don't use any lighting either. I think it would be a good experiment. I probably wouldn't use it all day because it seems like chondros don't like being in bright light. I think uh, for a while I assumed that they always perched on the highest perch because they like being further off the ground, but I think they perch on the highest perch because they like to be under something. I imagine in the wild they spend a lot of their time hiding under leaves and stuff, so there might be benefits to using it, but I probably wouldn't leave it on all day. Okay. And uh, the next question is specifically geared toward you, David. Uh, you may have answered this a little bit earlier, but we'll we'll, we'll go back. Any thoughts on, on crossing your blue line stuff to your tiger to your tiger stripe or blue line to high black stuff? This is from Mark Huffman. I'd probably cross it with the black stuff, but most of the snakes that I put together I have a specific reason for pairing them. I take two blue snakes and put them together in the hopes to create more blue snakes. My tiger stripe female was bred to the Arubiac, who had similar coloration, so I'm not sure. It would be interesting to see the results, what would happen if you mixed yellow with blue, but um, I'm not sure that's something I'm going to do in the near future. Okay. Black and blue, right. I, that makes more sense to me. Because okay. there seems to Great. be a relationship between black and blue. Agreed. Hey, Dave. Dave, can I just toss this one in there? When you were saying yellow and blue, you wouldn't mm -hmm. possibly make that pairing. How about this one? I did, you know, as as, as folks know, that, uh, you know, I'm concentrating most of my work on some of the more trooper blues animals and that and the Dream Lemon line that Hudson did from 2001. So I did that sib-to-sib -sib pairing two years ago, two and a half years ago, I believe, because I wanted to – it seems like a lot of the dream line animals from 2001, they've unfortunately, I believe it was like nine in that clutch of Jeff Letko. Um, and those animals are now pretty much deceased, but it seemed like that, that lineage became diluted with other animals, other lines, some Beox, some localities. And so that dream lemon line got less. And so I wanted to try to restore, Enhance, bring that back, restore, just concentrate it so I can have more animals to work with, more vari more varia variations to choose from um, to build up my stock. And when I did that first uh, sib-to-sib pairing, I got, they were all, like I said, <laughs> I'm all maroon here, all reds and maroons, I haven't had a yellow animal, me and eight, well, I've got a yellow female hmm. from that sib-to-sib hmm. pairing. So here we have these, they're 100% Dream Lemon, Mr. Blue, Timor's Blue Female. And I got a yellow and green, looks like a lemon tree animal, out of that. So that's like the, as Trooper named that defective bastard, when he did a blue line thing, he got that almost pure yellow animal. Um, so now I've got this yellow animal that's a blue line yellow animal. Would you, Dave, breed that female to a blue animal or keep her with yellows. Just curious. I think that depends on your personal preference, but I think pairing her with a blue <laughs> animal wouldn't be a bad idea because she does already have some blue lineage in her. Exactly. That's what for I me to take two animals that are wholly unrelated and put them together just, just to see what happens, it's probably not something I would do. Right. Okay, good.
Well, guys, um, we're getting really close to wrapping the show up. Are there um, anything else that you guys would like to share about the discussion tonight, your collection, thoughts about condors in general? Um, we always like to be able to throw out um, your contact information, uh, your any websites, your business names, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Dave, why don't you start? I don't have a whole lot to throw out there. I really like the community. That's something I didn't mention before about one of the reasons why I'm attracted to Condros. I think the, the people involved in this part of the hub are really cool. It's a um, great point. It would be nice to see a little bit more activity on the MVF. Boy, that's, want to, that's a whole other show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People want to get in I touch with me on my website. Back when we do that show. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> my website is uh, vibrantviridus.com. I can. My email address is on there. There's a contact form, so I'm pretty easy to get in touch with. Very good. Very good. And Mr. Culver, yourself? Yes, I'd like to once again. Um, Express my sincere thanks to everybody, uh, Buddy and Bill in particular. Dave's always great uh, chatting conjures with you and also the entire conjure community. Um, it's been wonderful getting the chance to not only speak about a true passion of mine, conjures in general, but uh, specifically the, the Blue Line conjures. Um, I apologize that uh, I personally do not have a current website, so if any of you, uh, even though I could deal in um, you know, technology, but if any anyone out there is a web designer that might want to touch base with me, you never know what uh, what could happen about nice. uh, relationships with web Con- designers. Con- Since Con- I actually am a writer. Con- <laughs> <laughs> you guys, so if anyone was out there listening, you know, my email address is uh, flywater at alaska.net, and um, if you got some ideas, I've opened, I've, I have a web design concept but I uh, just haven't been able to uh, put it all together yet. So maybe a little assistance, I'll get one up there. Um, but like I said, I just uh, really enjoy the kind of community. And maybe um, we'll get together and have one of those big barbecues again soon. Since I'm living up here in Alaska, I've, I've, always, I've always missed one. But you never know, guys. Alaska is a great place to visit in the summertime. I've Absolutely. See what kind of outdoors people like to come over and uh, take a visit. Buddy, what about yourself, my friend? Anything else we need to cover before we wrap it up? No, I think I think we got everything uh, in that we needed to. But I think uh, I think we need to do a part two. So you know, maybe we can have Rich and Dave back, and maybe we can get uh, you know, maybe we get Tim to come back on with us or something. And that'd be great. And really, you know, get everything. You know, have a, have a true. You know, get get the the condor party rolling and you know have one of the guys who were there you, with you the first blue condors around you can't get enough you can't get enough blue knowledge and um you no. know, we've had kind of old school you know we we've had Tim on um I don't know if I'd consider Rich old school that that would be kind of dating him <laughs> but <laughs> uh you know uh David is new school 
blue line. Uh, it would be great to have Tim on and do do a part two. Absolutely. Right. I, th- I think we could convince him to do it. We could do it. So let's plan it. Let's do it. Definitely we'll, plan uh, it up. Yeah, let's do it. Well, this, this show um, has been, personally, I think, you know, one of the best we've had. All the shows seem to be good and fun and knowledgeable. Uh, but this has been a really good one. I've really enjoyed it. Um, you guys are just a wealth of knowledge, well-spoken, have great animals, and uh, just can't thank you enough for coming on and joining us for a couple hours. It's mutual. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, buddy. Absolutely. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Yep, you guys are the stars of the show. We appreciate it. Without you guys participating, we wouldn't have GTP Keeper Radio. So keep that in mind when we uh, when we're asking for guests. Our guests make the show. Well, thank you for having us. Yep, thank you very You're much, welcome. everyone. Really appreciate it. All right, thanks, Good night, guys. guys. We'll be in touch. Good night, Good night guys. Good night. All right, buddy. Well, well done. Bill, what, what, yeah, what do you think of that, Joe? Man, that was that was a good one. I mean, they're all good. Um, but, right. You know, we have some that we have some that stand out, and boy, that that's been one of my favorites. That's um, yeah. Other than uh, other than maybe the female uh, roundtable, <laughs> which is my first personal <laughs> favorite, that in the uh, Greg Maxwell show. Um, right, boy, that one was really, really good. We haven't had a bad yeah, it was show. A good show. I mean, no, we we've been so lucky. I think part of our, you know, dumb luck success is that um, we're selective and we don't um, have a lot of shows. And the ones that we have, you know, we're 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 uh, quality over quantity. Yeah, I think so. Though so, uh, Owen and Eric may tell us different at the corporate expert meeting in April. Well, those guys are just freak lucky that they get to have both quantity that's, and that's quality. True. I mean, you know, they're they're stealing all of our all of our best guests away for their show. You know, but nah, I'm not bitter. Right. That's true. That is true. I've noticed that. Yeah, kind of a pattern and there. they keep rub. Well, they keep rubbing in the fact that they got, you know, some I don't know, trophy from, you know, best radio show, whatever. I I haven't paid too much attention, but I think know. they got the daytime Emmy award for uh, <laughs> best reptile podcast. <laughs> I think you're. I, I think you're uh, right, but I think there's there had been some ballot box stuff there. Oh, great. That's what, that's what I'm thinking. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Um, well, well, so we've we've got some plans for a future show. With uh, I think it could be a very interesting show. Maybe some groundbreaking stuff. If it all, if all the everything lines up the way it's supposed to, and all the contributors to the show are, are, can actually attend, and and you know we'll, we'll yes. talk about uh, you know. A rather serious issue that uh, you know, I don't think you and I have ever went down this road before. Have you, have we, Bill? Um, no. Um, yeah. No, we haven't. 
So I, I hope it all comes together. I don't, I don't, I don't want you to reveal too much about um, about the episode um, in case it doesn't happen, and also to right. throw a little bit of uh, mystique into the into potentially the next show. But it, uh, if it happens, I think it will be um, ground groundbreaking in our shows. I agree. I agree. Definitely, and um, we're we're thinking early May for that, right, Bill? Yeah. Okay. Yep that'll be that'll be nice because um, it will be um, post Southern Carpet Fest. Right. So we'll have uh, some time to to chat about that. That's April 29th, and so um, as long as you don't plan on doing that show April 30th. Like you tried to do one other time after Carpet <laughs> right. Fest, you tried to schedule a Sunday after Carpet Fest. So I was like, "Are you out of your mind?" So as long as it's not, uh, um, as long as it's not the first weekend in in May, we're good to go. Yep, I think we're okay. Yeah, good, perfect. All right, Bill. It's always All right, a pleasure, my friend. my friend. All right, talk to you soon. Great talking to you. Great show talk to you all right and that's a wrap gtp keeper radio for march 26 2017 the blue condor episode have a great night everyone